0: will. Turn in your Bibles to the second chapter, First Corinthians, as we continue our study through the Word. So you'll remember last time that we began this book that Paul writes, this letter that Paul writes. And You'll remember that he's writing it to the church that's located there in Corinth. Corinth was the church that Paul had planted during his second missionary trip. And Paul is now on his third missionary trip. On his third missionary trip, Paul ends up in Ephesus. And there is a series of letters that is going back and forth between Corinth and Paul, who was located there in Ephesus. There was a first letter that, that the Corinthians wrote to Paul and had some questions and some issues. And Paul writes back a response to that uh, letter and then the Corinthians have more questions and they write their second letter and now Paul writes back his second response. This letter that we have in front of us, this is that second response that Paul has. We don't have the the first correspondence. So we call it 1 Corinthians, but it is the second letter in the middle of an exchange of uh, uh, letters. And we talked last time about how this letter took on the regular format of a letter. In that day, it would begin by uh, uh, identifying who the letter is from Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. (laughs) We talked about it's important for us to know who we are, not (coughs) in our own identity, but in the will of God. Who are you by the will of God, in the will of God? And so, Paul's identity was that identity now in Christ. And he writes it to the Corinthians. And then there would be a a salutation, grace and peace. And we talked about Chorus and Shalom and uh, and those two greetings, the Greek greeting and the uh, the Hebrew greeting. And and then there would be a thanksgiving. And Paul talks about how he is so thankful for the gifts that have been poured out upon the church there in Corinth. The, the gifts of the Spirit were thick and were rich and, and had been poured out fully uh, upon the church. And then he jumps into the, uh, the issue that was uh, at hand. And the issue at hand uh, was the way in which the world had come into the church. What does a healthy church look like? That's really what Paul is is writing about, the church there in Corinth. And, And one hallmark of a healthy church then and now is that it keeps the world out, that the church doesn't begin to adopt the cultural practices of the world and incorporate them. The kingdom of God is not anything like the kingdoms of this world, and so the practices of this world have no place within the church itself. But... It's easy for them to start to find their way into the church. Now, one of the attributes of the world is the way a person seeks for status. Now, a lot of times in the world you will find status by attaching yourself to someone who has more status. Have you ever met a name dropper? So someone who will just slip in how they were at so-and-so's house, or they were over out with so-and-so, or they were invited by so-and-so. And, and, and that is a method of the world of seeking to increase your status by attaching yourself to somebody who has more status. It's that competitive world of where we are now seeking status amongst one another. Well, status Seeking is a way of the world, is not to be something that's found within the church. And that's exactly what had happened. It came in. They weren't attaching themselves now to businessmen or to those that were popular or famous, but they were doing it with the teachers that were within the church itself, with the pastors. And, and so people started to identify, well, who are you Who are you listening to? What small group are, are you involved in? Or, or who baptized you? And so they started to say, well, you know, I'm of Paul. And others, well, I'm of Apollos, and I'm of Cephas, and I'm of Christ. And so there were these different leaders now. And so there was status by association with leader. That's the world. Within the body of Christ, there's a great equality and unity within the body of Christ, not division and this vertical competition with uh, one another. And so Paul immediately addresses this, uh, this issue that, and asks the question, were any of these leaders, did any of these leaders go to the cross for you? Did any of these leaders suffer and shed their blood? You see, we're not attached to leaders. Our attachment is supposed to be to Jesus, to Christ. Uh, And so this is who we are attached to. And when we're attached to Christ, then there's no competition to who else we are attached to. It it ends there. And, And Paul says that when he came, what did he preach? He preached in Christ crucified. He didn't raise up and exalt other leaders within the church. There's one to be exalted. All glory, all honor goes to Jesus Christ. Amen? And so Paul says, you know, that I came preaching Christ. He he, he says, you know, when I preach Christ, though, he says to, uh, to those that were perishing, uh, the cross was foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it's the, it's the power of God. And so he talked about the, the foolishness of the cross to the uh, unsaved. But that message of the cross, he says that, that, that while it is foolishness, it's the power to us that, that in the presence of God, that the work of the cross was a work that was done fully by Christ. Our salvation was paid for by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That when we get to heaven, it's not anything that we did. It's everything that he did. That the wisdom of God created an environment where we're saved, but God gets all the glory so that in heaven we are not competing with each other. There's a perfect unity. Jesus paid it all. That's that's the glory. That's the wisdom of God that we have in salvation. Paul now is going to continue off of that theme here in this first verse of the second chapter. And he says, and I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. In Paul's day, there were these great orators that would go around and, and, and they would, you know, give these great teachings. And, and they were spectacular in their delivery and people would come and pay money to hear them. He says, when I came, did I come as one of those? Was I giving these tremendous orations that just held the, uh, the people in this rapt uh, attention? He says, no, I'm not one of those performers. There were no theatrics that were uh, involved. He says, I, I came simply preaching the uh, the testimony of God. What is the testimony of God? when Paul says that, uh, that he came declaring the The testimony of God. We have our testimony, but what is God's testimony? The testimony of God is the cross. That is the testimony of God. That God used the cross to reconcile mankind unto himself, and that is his testimony. And so Paul comes now giving the message of the cross, just the simple message of the cross. He says in verse 2, For I determined not to know anything among you, except Jesus Christ and and him crucified, Paul wasn't interested in discussing man's insights and man's philosophies. Remember the, the, the Greeks, they, they were big on philosophy and, and, and Plato and Aristotle and, and out of them the Epicureans and the Stoics and, and these were the, the battles of the day and, and everybody was talking about their philosophy. And, and when Paul comes, you remember he ends up in Mars Hill, Mars Hill in Athens, it was was the philosophical center of the, of the world. The Greek world was built around philosophy. And, and, and so Paul presents now Christ and crucified. And the philosophers were interested in, in, in this as a philosophy. But when they discovered that it wasn't a philosophy, they weren't interested in it whatsoever. And Paul says that, that I didn't come to debate philosophy with you. I, I didn't come to, uh, to share now the, the, the insights or, uh, or the theories of, uh, of man. He says, but I determined, I purposed uh, in my heart to know nothing except Jesus Christ and, and him crucified. And so in a, in a world that was noisy, with culture, with ideas, and with philosophies. Philosophies, let's understand what philosophy is. Philosophy is the attempt of man to make sense and to find solutions to life's problems without God. That's what philosophy is. And Paul says, that's worthless. That is just absolute nonsense. Can you imagine a bigger waste of time than to trying to figure out how to have a purposeful life without God? When the whole purpose is that you were created by God to know and be known by God and to spend eternity with him. And so mankind and culture today is seeking to find relevance and purpose and Saul the basic problems of violence and division and greed and selfishness and bullying and, and all of these problems are the world is trying to find the solutions to those uh, without God. We're going to set God aside and, and we have the humanist that believes that with inside of manners every single answer. And the secularist that says let's keep God separate from society and from culture. And so today we don't have the Epicureans and Stokes. We've got the secularists and we've got the humanists That are doing the exact same thing and Paul says in that environment I didn't want to even get involved with humanism or secularism I didn't come to discuss that because those are empty vain bodies of knowledge that give no answers to the true problems of life and to the significance that a person will find here upon this earth what did I come to do I came to preach Christ and crucified and salvation. And so hey, here we see that, you know, Paul wasn't interested in any of the vain reasonings of the world and, and to argue about them. He says, I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. Paul, most scholars believe, is talking about his his second missionary journey. And you'll remember in Paul's second missionary journey, his first missionary journey, he goes out and he plants churches in Galatia and Colossae and those areas there and then heads back to Antioch. And and then in his second missionary journey, he starts by doing a tour of the churches that he had planted, checking in on them. And then let's go plant some more churches. And you remember he wants to go to Ephesus That's Asia. In the province of Asia, the chief city was Ephesus. And Paul wants to then go and plant a church in Ephesus, but it says the Spirit wouldn't let him. And then he goes to Miletus, and from Miletus he gets the call to Macedonia, to head over. So he heads over, and that's where he comes to Philippi. And you remember he preaches the gospel there, but gets arrested, thrown into jail, and him and Silas are singing worship songs at, at midnight, and the great earthquake breaks in the open, and. Great persecution against them, and they head from there to Thessalonica, and they start a work in Thessalonica, but they're persecuted from Philippi, so they move on to Berea, and the Bereans, they, uh, they were wiser. They tested everything against the scriptures to see if these things were no, but persecution came to Berea. And so Paul departs there and he heads down to Athens. He heads up on Mars Hill with all of the philosophers there and, and he preaches Christ, but the philosophers after listening, they, uh, they wanted no part of it. And Paul heads from Athens there, to Corinth. Now, Corinth is the cesspool of the the world, the moral cesspool of the world, but it was there in Corinth that now the, the gospel takes root. But when Paul shows up in, in Corinth, it has been a, a rough missionary stretch of, uh, of path that he has now taken a course. He says, you know, when I was with you, it was in weakness and fear and, and much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. That your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And Paul came and he preached the gospel. He just simply presented the the gospel. There was no theatrics. there, There were no techniques that were built to manipulate emotional responses. He just simply presented the gospel. He allowed the power of the Holy Spirit to do its work. To have people respond to that gospel message. That you would respond not in the wisdom of man. In other words, if you can argue somebody into the gospel, guess what? Someone else can argue them right back out of the gospel. You see, it's not a cleverly designed body of thought. It's the power of God. It's the work of the Holy Spirit bringing conviction into the heart of each and every person that causes us to respond to God's invitation of of grace. And so it is the power of God. And so Paul refused to, to do anything but to simply present the gospel and allow the power of God to be at work. And so that power of God the power of God that is at work in your life and, and in my life, that, that is a changed life. A changed life is the demonstration of the power of God. And, and we live in such a divided culture today People are arguing, and especially on the internet over everything, and uh, the comments and the division that that is taking place as as our culture is seeming to turn and to tear itself apart, And, and, and the culture will argue about everything, but there's one thing that nobody can argue with you about, and that is your testimony. That is who I was before I met Jesus and now who I am today by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in in my life. And it is that transformed life, that's the demonstration of the truth behind the words that uh, that we are speaking. And, And so it is the power of God at work in a person's life he says in verse six, however, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. And so Paul now is talking about the, the wisdom of the word of God versus the wisdom of the world, the wisdom of the rulers and the elitists and those that are the uh, the. the Experts that are put onto pedestals in our, in our culture today. And so and here he says that we speak spiritual wisdom to those who are mature. He's talking about spiritual maturity. What does spiritual maturity look like? What does spiritual immaturity look like? And it has no response to, to age It has no response or correlation to the amount of time that a person has been a Christian. It has to do with your growth as a Christian. And so Paul here's desire is to speak spiritually mature thoughts to those that are spiritually mature to continue to to grow them. There are also the babes in Christ, those that are spiritually immature. And later on, he's going to talk about needing to give milk to those that are spiritually immature versus meat to those who are spiritually mature, to be able to talk about the deep things of God rather than reviewing the basics and the fundamentals and the milk. He says, you know, we're bringing meat to those that are spiritually mature. And he says that that spiritual wisdom, he says, that's different than the the wisdom uh, of the world. Uh, He says, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom (coughs) which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. He says, we speak the wisdom of God in a a mystery. What does that mean? Whenever we see the word mystery in the New Testament, it's important to recognize that what Paul is talking about, what the scriptures mean by a mystery, is something that is not discoverable by man. That's a mystery. In other words, a mystery is something that we know only because God revealed it to us, but not because it's something that we could have ever discovered on our own. For example, gravity. Gravity and the scientific approach that that is something that we observe and then we measure there is this inward pull towards the center of the earth that we began to discover that things fall and then we began to recognize that they don't fall at a steady rate but they fall at an increasing rate and then we were able to discover the the speed of that rate was 32 feet per second accelerating towards the center of the uh, of the earth And, and and that's the force of gravity and and now we have the wisdom of understanding. And in gravity and then how to use gravity and apply gravity and, and all of those things. That's all discoverable to us. But God, we can't measure him. We, we cannot know anything about God except what God reveals to us. And so it's a mystery to us until God reveals it to us. Now, what is the mystery that God revealed to us? Well, we know that man was separated from God by his sin. But how was God and man going to be reconciled back together again? What was the solution to sin? Well, we have the sacrifices that God gave through the old covenant, but those just covered over our sin and they didn't wash away our sin from our soul. But The new covenant, that was a mystery. It was alluded to. It was talked about. It was projected that there was one coming, that there was a solution to sin. But... Now we know that it's in Christ Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the the world. And so this mystery of our salvation, that now our sins aren't covered over but washed away, and we now have fellowship and communion, that was revealed to us. This is the mystery now, something that was unknowable, that's now knowable to us because God is the one that has revealed to, to us and it's been revealed in Christ He says, the rulers of this age, they didn't know about the plan of salvation. With all of their wisdom, with all of their knowledge, with all of their experts, with all of their philosophers, they didn't know about it. He says, if they had known about it, they wouldn't have crucified Jesus Christ when when he was here. So this was knowledge that wasn't available to the world. It's knowledge now that God has revealed. It was a mystery. But it was ordained before the ages of our glory. In other words, this wasn't a new revelation. Before man was ever created, God already had the solution to sin. He already knew that when he was going to give free will to Adam and Eve, that they were going to use their free will to sin and that sin would enter into the world. And so God also had the plan of salvation, of how to redeem mankind and how to bring us back together and that was before the ages this happened even before the creation of adam and eve and so this mystery the revelation but it's not the only mystery all of what god reveals to us now is is a mystery paul is going to say that heaven is a mystery that you and i can't know about heaven except what God reveals to us about heaven. We can't go up into heaven and measure it and describe it and come back down because no one's ever been in heaven. And so our knowledge of heaven now is given to us as a revelation. And, and here Paul writes in verse nine, but as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. And so he quotes from Isaiah 64 in the Old Testament talking about the promise that God has for us of what heaven is going to be like. Have you ever thought about heaven? Have you ever thought about where you're headed and what heaven is going to actually be like? And and what we do know about heaven is revealed to us in, in the scriptures. We know this, we know that In heaven, the streets are paved with gold. We know that. We know that in heaven, every tear has been wiped away. No more sorrow. No more pain. We know that in heaven that that we're not going to need the sun and the moon anymore for day and night and for light. That the light in heaven is the glory of God. It's going to illuminate heaven and there will no longer be a a need, a source of light, other than dwelling in the glory of God. But what else is heaven like? God, through the Holy Spirit in Isaiah, he writes that I hasn't even seen. In this temporal world in which we're living, your eyesight and my eyesight hasn't even seen. Anything like what we are going to see in heaven. And so I want you to imagine, what's the most glorious thing your eyes have ever seen? Maybe it's out in nature. Maybe it is a spectacular waterfall or a a sunset in the way that God just paints the skies. Maybe it's the, the stars illuminated in night. Maybe it was the face of your firstborn child you first saw that, that precious child that was the greatest sight that your eyes have ever beheld. Whatever the greatest thing that you've ever seen in your entire life is nothing compared to what you are going to see in heaven. And, and, and then whatever your ears, what's the most glorious sound that you've ever heard in your entire life? Maybe it's the thunder of a waterfall or... Or, or the incredible sound of, uh, of your favorite song or the orchestral swell of worship or music or, or laughter. What, what's the greatest sound that you've ever heard in your ears? And Paul says it's nothing, nothing compared to what you're going to hear in heaven. And, and then he goes on even further. What would heaven be like to you? Like, what, what's just pure, perfect joy even imagined? We know that in his presence is the fullness of joy. So... So what is the fullness of, of joy like you know, for you? If you're a golfer, you can't imagine heaven without, without golf courses. But, of course, on those golf courses, you'd never miss a putt, you know, so you'd never... Rim it. Man, that would just be, you know, heaven. If you're a horse lover, it's Mustangs riding in the wind with the mane. And, you know, that would be heaven to you. And what, what would be heaven to you? If you could design heaven, imagine it. Imagine anything and imagine it all the way and then add an exponent to it and he says, you're not even close. You are not even close to what God has prepared for you. Paul would say it another way. He would say, you know, the sufferings of this world, the the aches, the pains, the broken hearts, the emotional traumas and sadness and sorrows of, of death, and grief and, and the struggle of, uh, of man. He says all of it, added together in your life, it's not even worth mentioning in comparison to what God has in store for you. How glorious is the future that, that God has planned and it helps us to recognize and to remember that heaven isn't here on earth. We're just pilgrims. We're just passing through this, but we are on our way to heaven. And and we have that in an absolute assurance because it's been revealed to us by our heavenly Father. He says, but God has revealed them to us through his Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things. Yes, the deep things of God. God has revealed these mysteries to us, and he's done it through his Holy Spirit. He's done it through the Word of God. You see, the Word of God is given to us through the Holy Spirit. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And, and Second Peter says that holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit has given us the very Scriptures, the very revelation uh, of the things uh, of God. For what man knows the things of a man, verse 11, except the spirit of the man which is in him? And even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Here Paul is going to talk about this incredible gift that God gave to you and to me when you accepted Jesus Christ. And that was the Holy Spirit. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit that is inside of you is one of the greatest miracles that that you and I are experiencing and and that God has placed it inside it. And Paul begins by saying that we can't really understand who God is without the Spirit of God. He, He begins that illustration by talking about you. He says, nobody knows you, the fullness of you, like you. Nobody knows your deepest insecurities, the the fears that are so deep underneath that you don't share them with anybody, or the thoughts that you have that are deep down inside of you. People can know you, but nobody knows you except the spirit of you that is dwelling inside of you. He says the same thing of, of God. It is the Spirit of God that fully knows the nuances, the, uh, the intricacies and the intimacies of, uh, of God. But what has God done to help us to get to know Him? He has taken His Spirit and placed it inside of us so that we now can know God in a way that somebody that doesn't have that Spirit of God They're not capable of knowing God without the spirit that's been placed inside of him. And so he says, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. And what was the purpose? He says that we might know the things that we have been freely given to us by God. And so when you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, there was an amazing thing that happened. Number one, your sins were washed away, kapow. Every single debt that you had, every single law that you broke, every single offense was washed away from the records. And so the forgiveness of sin. You were adopted into the family now. He is your Abba, he is your daddy. But on top of that, he placed inside of you the Holy Spirit. You have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that is inside of you. You now are the temple of God. Remember that the physical temple in Jerusalem, what was it, the Shekinah glory, the Spirit of God dwelt in that temple. But now, guess what? We're living temples. And now the Shekinah glory, His Spirit dwells inside of you. And the indwelling of the Spirit, it so radically has changed you that You're now a completely new creation. You have a complete different operating system than than you ever had before when you didn't have the indwelling of that Holy Spirit inside of you. And and that indwelling of the Holy Spirit, it's going to teach you. It's going to lead you. It's going to help you. It's going to illuminate truth into you. Jesus has said that when he departs, it will be better for us because he's going to send the Holy Spirit to help each and every one of us. And so that we might now know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, But which the Holy Spirit teaches. Comparing spiritual things with spiritual. And so here we have now the the Spirit of God inside of us. That's going to be able to, to take and to bring us into the light of the spiritual truths that are revealed in the Word of God. Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would number one teach us. So you now have teacher of God dwelling inside of you to help you to be able to understand things that, uh, that you can't understand. You see, when the carnal mind reads the word of God, it cannot understand the things of the word of God. It doesn't make sense to him because they're spiritually discerned. And we now have that, uh, that instructor, that teacher that is within our heart. I want you to know that whenever you read Scripture and you don't understand what that in Scripture is saying, don't be afraid to ask God, what does that mean? I don't understand how that can be true. Ask the question in faith, what does that mean? Ask God by saying, I know that it's true because you've said it. That's the faith part. But right now, I can't understand that. So I need your help to be able to understand that. And I remember how the first time that I ever asked God a question in faith about the Word of God. I was a new believer, but I was excited. Every single word of the Bible is absolutely true, inspired, inerrant in its original autographs. And I remember I was at a wedding, and there was the Corinthians passage on love that was being read. Abide in these three things, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. And I remember sitting there and going, wait a minute. If I'm saved by faith, right? by grace you've been saved through faith. If faith is what now is the conduit of my eternal life, of my salvation, then isn't faith the greatest of those three? faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. And I I remember going, God, I know that you're saying that love is the greatest of these three, but I don't understand that because I'm confused. And I remember that it was maybe about two weeks later, I'm just reading the the scriptures, doing my devo, and, and along I come across a passage that says, faith is the substance of things unseen. And God says, did you see that? And I was like, well, he says, read that again. I'm like, faith is the substance of things unseen. Yes. (laughs) Uh, Faith, he says, is temporary. When the object of what you have faith is in front of you, you don't need faith any longer. He says, hope. Hope is temporary. When your hope is completed, when your hope is fulfilled, it's temporary. He said love is the only of those three that is eternal in heaven you won't need faith in heaven you won't need hope but in heaven there will always be love and that's why love is the greatest of those three and it was the holy spirit now Teaching me, instructing me into the truth of of God's word. And you have that same teacher. I have that same teacher that is indwelling us, that is helping us to understand the spiritual things, to be able to grow us into the deeper things of, uh, of God. Not the words of man's wisdom. Not secular humanism or self-esteem movement or uh, any of the uh, the pundits that the world is now professing to us but eternal spiritual truths that this entire world is built upon these are the truths that are contained in God's word comparing spiritual things with in spiritual guiding us into the fullness of the truth of God's word but the natural man, verse 14, does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. The, the natural man, that that is a, a word for the person that is unsaved. And so an unsaved person is just governed by their fleshly appetites and by their base drives and desires in, in their life. When uh, when they come across the things of the uh, word of god they they laugh at them they think that uh, that you're foolish purity abstaining from sex why why would you do that that doesn't even make mm, sense and and the things that god teaches about serving others and loving others it doesn't even make sense to the uh, to the carnal person to the carnal mind and even when they learn them or hear that that's what the Bible teaches, they, they don't understand them because they're spiritually discerned. And, and so here we see that Paul is contrasting the, the spiritual man. Now, when he's talking about a spiritual man, he's talking about a spiritually mature person. In the next chapter, Paul is going to differentiate between a spiritually mature believer and a spiritually immature believer. He's going to call them a carnal Christian, a person that's saved, but you know what? They're satisfied with just being saved. They're saved, they're going to heaven. And now, They just want to keep living their life the way that they've always been living their life, except that now they have the I get to go to heaven card. That's the the carnal Christian. They look just like a, a carnal person, but they have put their trust in Christ. And every single person, when we first accept Jesus Christ, we begin at that place. But that's our beginning place, not our ending place. See, they were saved and satisfied, but the mature person is saved and sanctified. And so there is that that positional movement of growth and maturity in our life that that God calls us to we don't get saved and then just stay there in that state and so here we see though that Paul is contrasting the saved person but it's the spiritually mature saved person with the unsaved person a person that that walks by sight and And they only understand the world by the things that they are able to see. They are spiritually blind. And and so we see that, that this is where the Corinthian church really was at. They lacked discernment and they didn't have spiritual growth. In verse 15 he says, But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet himself is rightly judged by no one. When it says that a spiritually mature person judges all things, it means that he understands all things, meaning he understands the spiritual world And he understands the carnal world. He understands the way that the world operates and why they're doing the things that that they are doing. He, He has understanding when he can see that. But the carnal person can't understand the spiritual man. And they only understand the carnal world. And so they don't value the spiritual man whatsoever. In fact, they denigrate him. They put him down. They mock him. They call him a simpleton, think that, uh, that they're fools for living their lives in such uh, ways. And, and Jesus said that that would happen. That's what they said of Jesus. And in fact, they not only persecuted him, but they crucified him. And Jesus said of us that a servant's not greater than his master. If they hated me and they persecuted me, they're going to hate you and persecute you as well. For who has known, verse 16, the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Paul closes this chapter here with a quote out of Isaiah chapter 40, which says, who, who has known the mind of the Lord so that we can instruct him? In other words, how can we judge God because who can even know God in order to be able to, to judge him? And, and so the question here is, you know, we have been given now the mind of Christ. But we have the mind of Christ. And that's really where I wanted to close our, our study and just talk about for a minute. What does that mean? What's the mind of Christ mean? But we have the mind of, of Christ. Well... What Paul is talking about here is he's referencing the concept of adopting the thoughts and the attitudes and the perspective of Jesus Christ. And so uh, how do we do that? What is that process of of taking on or adopting the, the mind of Christ? Well, There's few key aspects to it. The first one of adopting the mind of Christ begins with the knowledge of the scriptures. It starts with knowing what the word of God has to say. That happens by studying the the teachings and the life of Jesus Christ as revealed in the the word of God. Jesus invited you to follow him. And so we have the, the model that was in front of us. I love that about God. I love that god didn 't just tell us how to live, but God said, "Let me show you how to live and so Christ came to live out that perfect life, and so it 's been modeled for us but That requires us now to study what did the life of Christ look like. And and we've got the four Gospels that give us those four different perspectives on the life of Christ. And so studying the life of Christ, his actions, his attitudes, how he conducted himself. It wasn't just what he taught, but it was the way that he lived. And you'll remember even at the Last Supper, Remember when Jesus disrobes himself and he washes the disciples' feet? And then afterwards, what does he say? He says, I have set for you an example for you now to follow and to wash one another's feet. And so the mind of Christ begins by by studying and looking at the actions of him. But then also we have the teachings of Christ the way in which he taught us and instructed us and the parables and all of the words in red. I love the words in red in the, in the Gospels. And I, I remember when, when I first got saved that, that there was a little book, All the Words of Jesus, and it only had the words of Jesus as recorded in the four Gospels. And I used to keep that in my back pocket and I just wanted to read just Just what Jesus had to say. What what does Jesus have to say on on everything? Taking on the mind of Christ means now a study of the Scripture, a serious study of the life of Christ, the words and and actions of our Lord. And and, and so that's been given to us uh, and we have access to it. And then as we study it, the Holy Spirit is going to do the work uh, uh, teaching us and helping us. So the mind of Christ begins with the the knowledge of the scriptures. The second thing, though, is there is an attitude that I think that we need to bring to that study of the scriptures, and, and, and that is that willingness for us to let go of the way that we used to think and to adopt now the instructions of Christ, to let go and be willing to be molded and to be soft play in the hands of the Lord as, as we now were developed into the person that we were prior to our salvation. But now it's time to grow. It's time to change. God wants to do a great work in you and then work through you at the same time. And, and so not being stiff necked, not being hard hearted, open, soft, yielded, flexible, mold me, change me. God, I want to change. It starts with the cry of the heart, a willingness to want to change. But also God promises this, that the quality of your life, the quality of your experience here upon this earth is going to be directly proportional to the work that God accomplishes in your heart and in your life. In other words, it's in your own best interest to yield to the work of the Holy Spirit. You're not doing God a favor like, oh, okay, God, you know, you can, you can have my life. I'm really sacrificing something, you know. No, you're changing copper for gold. <laughs> you know, you're changing your, your old viewpoint that had limitations and prevented you from loving people and being used by God in the way that God desires to. He is doing a fabulous work in you. And we need to be excited about that and, and yielded to that work of the Spirit. So a study of the scriptures, knowledge of Christ, knowledge of his teachings, a, a soft uh, heart. And, uh, and then taking on the mind of Christ is, uh, is relational with God. It's being relational with God. It's an understanding that God isn't far off over there in heaven watching you and recording every mistake that that you make. That he wants to be actively involved with your life. He wants a running conversation with you. He he wants you to talk to him about how you're doing. How's your heart? What are you struggling with today? What what do you need to help with? What do you need wisdom with? What decisions are you trying to make? Or what are you trying to achieve that that you now need his help and his his assistance in? And and God's there to hold your hand every step of the way. He doesn't give you the, uh, the rules of the kingdom, invite you into it and then just hands off, go ahead and do your best and uh, I'll see you at the finish line. He's not a God that stands off at the distance and and just watches. That's what the Greek philosophers believed, those that believed in a God, that God was not involved in the affairs of men, that that he just was off at a distance. We have a, a relational, intimate God that cares about you and it love's about and loves you. He never asked you to live life on your own and do life on your own. He wants you to be fully intimate with Him, and He wants to help you every step of the way. And so the mind of Christ is that climbing up onto the lap of God, not living life at a distance from God, knowing that He's watching. So, the mind of Christ, I think that the the mind of Christ also another key aspect of it is the is the servant heart of Christ that he didn't come to be served but to serve you see the the kingdom of God is the inverse of the world the the world you're at the top, king of the mountain and and everybody serves you, but in the kingdom of god the the godly person is, is underneath. He's the servant of everybody else. And, and so that mind of Christ is, it, 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 it's a removal of everything that you learned from the world about climbing to the top and, and being there. But now it's about climbing underneath everybody and lifting everybody else up around you. That's Christ-mindedness, and so the taking on of the mind of Christ—it's a lifelong process. It requires ongoing growth and transformation, being renewed by the washing of the Word, and not being conformed to this world, but being transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit at, at work in our life. It's adopting the thoughts and the attitudes and the actions as. We live out our relationship uh, now intimately and our relationship with mm, God. And as we journey through this life, knowing that we will one day hear the words, well done, thy good and faithful servant. You have no idea. Enter in to what I have prepared for you. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word, for your truth the revelation of what is in store for us in every day, aid and help in every step of the way. So God, we love you. We thank you. Continue to to grow us, to, to move us forwards into the sanctified saint. Not a satisfied saint, but a sanctified saint reflecting your glory and image here in this world. It's in Jesus' holy and precious name we pray, amen.